Welcome to Think and Act Differently, the modern mining podcast. I'm Katie Humes, founder of Think and Act Differently. We always talk about bringing diversity into our industry, but what does it really take to change the way we work and to allow that to happen? And when we do it, what do we learn about ourselves? With me is Jessica Doherty, Experimentation and Innovator Experience Manager at Think and Act Differently, and Holly Bridgewater, founder of Human AI and Innovation Specialist at Unearth. Welcome. Hi. Hi, happy to be here. You two have some absolutely incredible titles, and I don't even want to try and uh, explain them to our listeners today. So Jess, let's start with you. Tell me a little bit about the title you carry, but more so, what does it mean? So I work in Think and Act Differently, and I am the experimentation and innovation experience manager. And what that means is I get to find a home in the experience of the people that come to us to test their ideas rather than bringing particular technical mining skills to the table. So all about learning, failing fast, collaborating at pace and having a really great time while you do it. What about you, Holly? You've got a couple of places that you represent here today. Can you want to tell us a bit about those? Yeah, absolutely. So I represent Unearthed. We work very closely with the TAD team to, I guess, scout globally for innovators and startups and interesting people around the world that can help think about mining differently and solve problems. So in that role, I'm very much focused on how do we engage people all around the world to help join us in solving some of the key challenges in mining. And my other role in human AI which is really focused on data science, we're doing a similar thing, but from that data angle. So how do we engage the smartest data scientists around the world to come and look at all this big data we have in mining and help solve some of our our key challenges there? So yeah, definitely a lot of synergies across the two roles. I think we're going to learn a lot from both of you. Jess, you're not always from mining. What's been your experience coming into mining? I had a really diverse career background on my way here. I studied business and language in school. My Spanish degree comes in remarkably unhelpfully in Australia. I then got really excited about emerging technologies. And so I worked with a pharmaceutical company for quite a long time trying to get RFID off the ground. And I got a passion for sort of that transformational change aspect because there was a lot of legislation driving that in America at the time. And then when I moved to Australia, I spent a little bit of time in finance and quite a long time in IT trying to find my my home, really embraced the leadership side of the IT world while I was there. And then I was sort of told that Oz Minerals was culturally the place I should end up by my best friend in recruitment. I ignored her for many years because I thought it meant flying out to a mine site all the time. And I wasn't really able to do that with young children. So then I... Finally joined with a six-month contract and met Katie, and we were building Lego in what is endearingly referred to as the shed, and I knew I'd found my, my home. So this is, uh, yeah, this has been an amazing journey for me. I think there's more of a story to why your home was in the shed, Jess, so <laughs> we might have to save that for another episode. Holly, you might have always been in this industry as a geologist by trade, but uh, you certainly spend a lot of time bringing what we might term outsiders in. So I'd love to hear from you about your experience working in that space. Yeah, a geoscience background, so I've been in the mining industry or oh, uh, yeah, 16 odd years now. Um, and, you know, I think I've always had a real passion for geology. And, and I think from my story, I got to a point where I thought, I feel like we could be doing things 
differently and, and better. Like, you know, geoscience is an interesting domain, particularly exploration, because we're very bad at it. We have about a 1% success rate. So I was always in my mind, I was like, how do we increase that? How do we discover more? And that's kind of what took me to that kind of innovation and technology lens is there's got to be so many opportunities, whether it's in data or whether it's in technology, to think about that that problem differently. Uh, and so from there, we've ended up working with innovators all around the world, not just in, in the geoscience space, but obviously in all areas of mining to try and really unpack how we can think about things differently. And, you know, bringing people in from other industries has been so critical in the success of doing that. So we talk a lot about how there's value in having these perspectives from outside of our industry. Jess, do you have some examples maybe where you've seen that actually play out? For me, taking diversity on through a new lens has been really important to embracing this kind of work. And that kind of, for me, evolved from a niggling against corporate metrics around First Nations or female participation in the in the workforce. And then that sort of evolved to what Holly's talking about, that sort of cross-industry perspective or that global reach and finding a way to go even beyond that into, I guess, embracing the innovator where they can meet you has been really interesting for me. So customizing their experience and I guess maybe not dismissing them because they can't speak the language that you can speak is something really interesting for me. And that doesn't necessarily mean their native tongue, but it could be that they're really bad at pitching, but they have a great idea. And as someone who's been bred to value competence above everything else, that was a big challenge for me to kind of break down my own bias. Most recently, we kicked off an experiment with someone from the agriculture space, which is really exciting. He's got a great idea that we're going to try to apply to an asset that we're exploring in the dry processing space. And what's amazing about that is that there's mutual value we can generate through that discussion because he has a a niggling feeling that he can make that work in the mining space, but he realizes it's a big commit to kind of actually try to get one of those contracts. So by de-risking that and proving it up in a machine learning sense, he gets to sort of get the outcomes of that, save a lot of time, save a lot of money in deciding if if this is going to stick or if he needs to pivot. And we also can figure out if this is something that can add value to our process so that we can move into a more formal testing regime later. So that's that's one example from another industry that's happened. We've experimented with the curated crowd as well and brought in people from tons of different industries, from defense to space, which is really, really cool, and getting their perspectives and just looking for those analogs. So people who are developing tech for space, which is such a huge and growing industry in South Australia, Actually, South Australian mining provides the most, I guess, proximate on earth analog for them. So finding those ways that you can grow from each other and learn from each other without having to compete with each other is actually quite amazing. I mean, it's quite fascinating, really, because it's one thing to find these incredible innovators and technologists and just people with great ideas. It's another thing to get them in and working on meaningful, practical problems. Holly, I'm wondering whether you've got a view on how maybe you've tackled that. And then I'm going to get you to add to that, Jess, because I know you've both worked together on building some new processes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it starts initially in how you clearly frame the problem that you're trying to solve. And that's a lot of the time, you know, that that Jess and I talk together is how are we going to frame these problems that we're facing and the challenges in our industry so that someone from another industry can understand them and can actually connect the dots between what they're doing and they're a completely different industry and how that solution might solve some of the challenges in mining. A lot of what we do comes down to communication at the forefront is, you know, how can we make these concepts simple? How can we help people connect to them? How do we help people care about them? Because 
a lot of people aren't aware of what's going on in the mining industry. They don't know anything about it. Most people have never seen a mine site or would even be able to conceptualize what one looks like. So we've really got to tell that story well to start with. And once you've helped people connect to the problem, I think then it comes down to understanding what support they need to be able to transition their idea over to our industry and that support and uh, and what people need from us is quite variable whether it's you know access to subject matter experts or support to access to to run a trial or access to samples or things like that or commercialization support it can be quite variable so it's important to keep in mind how you're going to support people differently just you talk about that a lot i mean the the need to have a not one size fits all solution. Um, do you want to expand on that for us? Look, Holly really kind of covered that menu of options that we've been exploring over the past couple of years in the TAD space and finding a way to give people that mutual value and that experience where, you know, even if you don't continue experimenting with them or funding them beyond that first loop, they still show up to your webinars and tell great stories about the experience they had with you. That's the kind of work that, that drives the passion behind what we're building. I remember the very first time we ran a cohort, we picked three companies who had come to us through the crowd or in various different ways. And I joined them as a peer instead of leading the group. And I said, right, my experiment is your experience. And I'm going to test a bunch of things. And I need really open, gritty feedback so that when I roll this out for real with a public crowd challenge, people are going to get value out of it. And I changed, I think, just about everything about my hypothesis around how it would work through working with those really open, talented people. And I think one of the really interesting things for me was I thought everyone was going to be after the money. And in that particular experience, that was the least of their worries. It was, can you connect me to somebody who has this experience in the underground environment? Because I'm never going to be able to find them in my day-to-day life as a startup. Can you help me understand these quantities of products that are developed at the mine site so that I can understand what scale I need to be designing my product around? So the the money actually wasn't the thing that was driving them. It was how do I get this information? Because mining can be quite a closed loop. It's a really production-driven industry, and people are really focused on delivering against what they're there to do in the mine plan. So finding those inroads and getting them connected to the right people has been this beautifully valuable experience, I think, for those innovators. Holly, I just want to build on that because you said a word to me in a meeting the other day that really resonated. It was empathy. And that is what's what's jumping to front of mind for me as Jess is telling this story. How do you create an environment with all of the multitude of companies that you work with to have that space for those innovators to come in? You know, I think a lot of the time empathy for me almost starts with curiosity about wanting to really learn about other people and what's important to them and really see as much as we can to understand understand their position. You know, I think a key one to start with is that a lot of people we're dealing with are startup founders and they're not from corporate backgrounds. So immediately you've got a bit of a chasm to cross in terms of how do you put yourself in the footprints of a founder, but also for the founders, we say, well, how do you put yourself in the footprints of someone in a large corporate business? And a lot of the time, that that's a thing the founders don't think about either. They they don't understand the the dynamics of a large corporate entity, the time it takes, the procurement practices. And whilst we may want to change some of those procurement practices, we also have to understand we need to meet people where they are at to get things moving. So, yeah, I would say curiosity is key for anyone that's coming into working with people that are really different to what they're used to and really trying to learn about that person's day-to-day role and how you can help them be successful. And that's going to be different based on the type of organization or group that, that you're working with. 
to do that at scale and think about, well, how can you do that for multiple people, I think is challenging because it isn't one size fits all. So often you want to try and scale things and, and, and you know, create processes that are more automated, but it does come back to people. And often there are elements of your processes that you can't scale where you need to think about how you support individuals. So when we do our you know, outreach globally, we're not going to attract people just by doing LinkedIn posts. We email them directly. We have calls with them. We talk to them. We help them explain to them the challenges. And, and that's what helps them get across the line to be interested in what we're doing. And maintaining relationships takes time and effort from all parties, doesn't it? Both sides need to be invested in in continuing to move that forwards. I think one other thing that I might add to that is when I joined the team, obviously I didn't have that mining background. And one of our colleagues ran Mining 101 for our group, I think just for me, but technically for the group to get us up to speed on the value chain. And it was interesting because I was talking about it with just some of my corporate counterparts from, from IT land, and they had never been exposed to that kind of knowledge. And so we offered it internally and then ultimately offered it to our innovators and just opening that curtain to the Wizard of Oz and explaining that process so that they could try to imagine how they could fit into it and add value was really, really important. And it wasn't something that had been done broadly before. And I think just showing people how they might connect those dots and kind of helping them to do that has been really good. So that's one of the things that comes to my mind. And then joint ventures, which we're also exploring within our group, they've enabled companies to come together and fund experiments that are in the best interest of more than one company, but without sort of grabbing IP or giving up their competitive advantage. And I was concerned when we started out at this process, I talked about that original cohort, that people would really worry that their ideas would be kind of pillaged and would find it hard to share quite openly. We do something called a learnings roundtable where every couple of weeks we get together and we talk really openly about our progress and our experiment, but also our experience. And I think one of my biggest surprises in those early days was how easy it was to build that psychological safety and encourage that learning. By the time people got through the conversation with us and got to know us and we got to know them, that sharing was actually really, really natural. And one of my favorite stories is about an innovator who was sitting in our first crowd-based cohort and he sort of shouted out that through the feedback from his mentor and his cohort in that group, he saved two prototypes and months of effort that he would have spent if he hadn't been able to have that conversation in that space. So to me, that was just the, I guess, the perfect explanation of, of the experience you're trying to build for those people. I want to pick on a word here. We've used it a couple of times and I want to help our listeners out with understanding a little bit more about it. What do we mean when we say crowd? What does that actually mean? Really, when we say, if we talk about crowdsourcing, we're talking about engaging people globally uh, from all walks of life. So it, it kind of can be anyone, but thinking about a collection of people that are coming together to, in, in this case, solve a problem. And so if you think about what types of people might be in the kind of crowds that we're talking about in the technology lens, it does cross, you know, it's not just about startups. It, it's a lot of researchers. It's also big companies that are, are developing technologies individuals that just have a passion for that topic as well and have developed expertise. So I guess that's why the, the word crowd kind of is a catch-all to kind of say, well, you know, everybody's welcome if you can contribute. If we look more specifically on the data science crowd, there we kind of are looking at a crowd of expert data scientists around the world who can come and have a look at the data that we're collecting and analyze it in unique ways. So I can be a part of the crowd, but I'm probably not a part of a data science crowd. We all know my limitations in that space. 
I can imagine it's not overly easy to build and maintain and engage with a crowd. That is an enormous amount of people. Uh, how do you go about approaching that? I think, again, the engagement piece does come back to empathy and thinking about what's the value that we are, I guess, transacting around here. So when we're talking about engaging people, what do they need from us as a group and what do they need from each other? So some of this goes back to the, the conversations that we had before around um you know, helping people connect to others to help whatever it is that they're trying to achieve in their roles. A lot of the engagement types of of things that we might do on a tangible base would be running this kind of the cohort model that that TAD focuses on where we have regular roundtables and catch-ups with people no matter where they are around the world at different time zones so that we make sure that that covers um, for different people and they have an opportunity to frame the types of topics that they want to talk about that's important to them engaging them with the opportunities as they come through, asking them for feedback. So they have regular ways to engage with the different people in the ecosystem. The data science crowd is interesting because if we talk about that kind of understanding the value, the value proposition for people in the data science crowd is completely different. And so if we look at what people are often looking for there, it's status and and recognition within their peer group. A lot of people will post on their LinkedIn or Twitter that they've won a, a data science competition a lot of the data scientists want to just work on a project and then go and do something else. So again, it's quite a different kind of engagement model in those two groups. Yeah, feedback's really, really important. Even as an individual, I think all of us would have an, an example of where we've wanted feedback, we've in, you know needed the feedback. Jess, you are such a advocate for providing feedback and learning with the innovators that come through TAD. And I know with our last data science crowd challenge, you actually tested some of your kind of approaches to that. What did you learn through that experience? Uh, Repeat previous comment, one size will never fit all. So we had kind of developed a blueprint for running a crowd challenge, having the learnings roundtables, having insights panels to share those learnings. And then we got to data science and went, this is not going to fit at all. What does this look like now? And so what's been really cool has been meeting all of these different people and actually testing out what we had to offer and what parts of it actually interested them. So I think bringing that vulnerability and transparency into the conversation and saying, this is the sort of thing we usually do. Tell us if that would be of value to you. These are some of the ideas I have moving forward. And so what we've kind of landed on is we did a kickoff, which was really cool because we had four winners. They were all from different language backgrounds in different parts of the world. And we somehow managed to have a pretty successful kickoff where they got to meet the team and they got to meet each other and we got to march out our rudimentary language skills from the team to welcome all of them in their own way. And then we agreed that we'd just give them updates on how their models were being used. So every sort of four to six weeks, I send them an email and say, this is the progress we've made. This is how what you did is actually being used in the real world. And they've actually written back straight away every time to say how cool it is for them to understand how their work is adding value. So that's something that I sort of hadn't expected to do in the past. You certainly make this seem really easy. And I'm sure many people are listening thinking, gee, I don't know if I could do that. I don't even know where to start. But can you tell us a little bit about how it actually felt to move into this way of working? I struggled really deeply with this. I think I was kind of trained fresh out of college by a consulting powerhouse in America where you were literally grilled to believe that you should never ask a question because everyone's time was more valuable than yours. And it was terrifying. And so I think, especially moving to Australia and moving into 
this experimentation mindset in a startup has been really confronting. And I think I spent six months fighting with Katie trying to get her to tell me what to do when she was absolutely never going to do it. So I think I had to really, really dig deep and put myself out there and be comfortable to make mistakes in a really public forum, or at least it felt really public to me. I mean, it probably wasn't hugely public, but in front of all of these innovators who were counting on me to kind of bring the experience. And so it made me really uncomfortable. And I had to start all over again, almost to, if I didn't have the answer, say, okay, let's get in a room and workshop it instead of, I'll figure it out. I'll come back when I know the answer. I found it really, really difficult, to be honest. It was a whole new level of self-development that I didn't realize I was signing up for, but I'm very grateful for I think it's the vulnerability that you bring that encourages people to also show up as human to interact. And I think that's really key in what makes working with a diverse group of people possible. Uh, I'm sure you've got similar experiences, Holly. I mean, transitioning from geologist to founder, I'm sure you learned a lot about yourself as well. Yeah, definitely. And I often remind people that, you know, I chose a career that is literally spending all my time with rocks and not people in the outback where there's also no one around. So it was a big transition for me. And especially for a lot of us who start our career in these you know, somewhat remote operations, the way that you engage with people, you know, I spent most of my time with drillers for the first 10 years, you know, that's very different to transitioning to, you know, a more, more corporate environment. But I think some of the bigger challenges for me were, you know, I'm a very data-driven scientific person and going from a very technical role into thinking about okay now I've got to engage a global community of people how on earth do I do that and I actually still kind of took the scientific approach and studied a bit of neuroscience and I think that's still is something that I always try and bring through to my discussions with people about change and diversity is that our brain really struggles with that stuff like our brain is not designed for this. And that's an important thing for us to hold as well. And and that I think helped me have a bit more empathy for myself through some of these learnings to say, you know what, this is this is hard. And and you are kind of starting from scratch, or I was going from a very technical role into largely kind of a, a communications, a very heavily communications focused role. So I really had to learn the hard way about what worked and what didn't. Um, I really struggled having a lack of data about what worked and what didn't and not knowing what was going to work and what didn't work in terms of engaging with different people. Um, and and just, I guess, asking, you know, working with a lot of people that had experience in that space really helped me. A good friend of mine sat me down one day and, and said, you know, you really need to think about your engagement process as a, a B2B sales strategy. And, and I kind of like winced at that because I really feel like I have an anti-sales vein running through my body, which is silly because, you know, I think what I've definitely learned is that that's probably one of the best and biggest skills that anyone can have in anything you can do is being able to sell your ideas or um, engage people. And, and it's not really selling. It's about engaging and it's about sharing and it's about delivering value. So I had to really learn how to communicate on completely different levels with a lot of different people and understand what worked. And getting used to a new type of data that wasn't numerical, but being able to actually, you know, see how people were reacting and, you know, understand what what resonated with them and what didn't and help that kind of build our processes and our engagement strategies. So, yeah, similar to Jess, it was a huge transition, something that was really challenging for me, but just such an incredible learning experience and the amount that I've grown as a person and I think my ability to engage with with people and help people and deliver value to them has really grown from that. I think you all know that my passion is finding an individual's superpower. 
Um, anyone that works with me knows I talk about superpowers all the time. We all have them. Every single person on this planet has something they are fantastic at and should be proud of. And I think it's equally important when you're working with diversity to also know maybe what you're not strong in or what your superpower isn't and then find the people that you can put around you to help you deliver that. And I see you both do this all the time. An example that comes to mind for me is we have some fantastically technically brilliant-minded innovators that come through who need support with pitching. I'm wondering if you can expand on on those examples where you've had to help people get their ideas clearly articulated. Holly has a great burger model that maybe she wants to talk about that I know Unearth has used in pitch coaching in the past. A big role that we play is helping people tell their story in the right way for the for the right audience. You know, I've worked with lots of different startups over the years and a lot of us do have a tendency when we have an opportunity to pitch for want of a better word or to we think we have an opportunity to potentially engage a new customer is to go in and talk about ourselves and what we do for the entire time. And that just doesn't work. And and this comes back to the burger model, I think. It's kind of introducing yourself and your skills, what the problem that you're trying to solve and how you're solving it and then and then how you can potentially work together but always making sure that there's a lot of time to ask questions and engage with the people that you're in the room with so there's a lot of opportunity to help upskill people in storytelling and also I think the great thing that we often do within TAD is help them learn from each other so see how other people are presenting their ideas and and what feedback they're getting and what can you learn from them so kind of helping people engage in a learning environment where they're learning from each other and seeing what works as well is super valuable. I think something else to keep in mind is often when these startups are used to talking to a big mining organization, they're trying to put together a pitch for $20 million that funds their company for the next five years. What we're trying to work with them and and speak to them about is how can you break that down into a very small three-month kind of experiment that de-risks your idea you have a very clear hypothesis to take it one step further. And you might do three of those in a row with us, but let's commit to one and find a way that you're going to get value and takes you a step further, but doesn't necessarily mean you need to spend 18 months putting together this program of work and committing all the resources that you have in your organization. So it's embracing that experimental mindset and the way of creating smaller change in multiple loops rather than one giant big bang. And I think working with someone who says, the smallest thing I can do is $2 million until they actually say, well, I could spend 30 doing X, Y, and Z as the first step in that and getting them to say, okay, that's worth us investing in together is something that's been quite an interesting journey as well. And one thing I love about the way that we've approached this is we've been really, really careful to take quite a different stance to IP in the work that we do. So rather than saying, well, your intellectual property will vest with us, We actually say that needs to be completely vested with the innovator. That's your idea. We would like to be able to use it if this works. So background IP sits with you. But if the thing that we've invested in together actually adds value in a mining context, we'd like a license to use it. But you should also be able to put that on the shelf and sell it to everyone else. And I think that's been really unusual for our industry, but quite, I guess, welcoming and helpful in helping innovators feel like they can connect in with us without sort of taking on a huge amount of risk for their own business. Just building on that last discussion uh, around the way we run experiments, I want to dig into the way we select innovators to come through to be a part of our cohorts and the role of bias and how we avoid maybe bringing 
our own preconceived ideas based on experience into that decision-making process. You know, there's a, certainly a role for experience, but, but maybe not bias. I, I don't know, Jess, how, how you think about that. I think that's one opportunity to bring diversity into the way that we collaborate. So we don't have one person that chooses who is going to go forward with these experiments. I very frequently have no idea technically what the innovator is pitching, but what I can bring is an awareness of culturally how they'll go openly sharing and collaborating with other innovators and embracing the process. And that's really, really an important part of how we work together with with the people that come through the crowd into our experimental cohorts. So I suppose making sure you have a lot of different perspectives leaning into deciding who comes along on that journey with you and making sure that they represent the brand that you really want the ecosystem and the community to recognize you as is quite important. I often tell a story where we had the CEO of Inspire Resources, who is an amazing partner of ours, and also another one of my colleagues and myself at a pitch event where we had a whole bunch of different innovators coming together after they'd gone through pitch coaching and explaining why they should get some funding and join our next cohort. And I just remember looking around the virtual room because everything is global and online with us, which is great. Thank you, COVID. And thinking just surprisingly, there were so many women on the call, which is rare in the mining industry, unfortunately, and something that we're really actively trying to encourage more participation in. But there was one gentleman who kept pitching. And though I was hosting the event and it was a room with many female faces just refused to start any sentence without the word gentleman. And I, the first couple of times let it roll off my back, but found myself wincing as his presentation went on. And we were putting all of our feedback, the three judges, into one shared document. And I just wrote gentleman in quotes under him as a note to come back to. So after the pitch event had ended, we all got together on a, on a video chat to sort of talk through our feedback and debate who we thought should go forward and why and how they aligned to the criteria that we'd established for the challenge. And I remember just saying, look, I don't want to make a big deal out of this. And Andy from Inspire actually jumped in and said, I don't want you to feel uncomfortable raising this. I don't think that kind of non-inclusive language is what you're hoping people will represent Tad with and your brand. And I think as a woman, I found that so powerful because I think so often we think, I don't want to make a big deal out of this. I'm being oversensitive. And just the unilateral support that was already inbuilt into the system by the people that we were working with was, it was just, yeah, really a mind shift for me. It was quite amazing. So I think you have to set your own bias aside, but you need to find other people who have totally different backgrounds and totally different perspectives, but can challenge sort of your own tendencies and bias in the decision-making process as well. Holly, you must come up against bias all the time. I mean, you've got innovators with brand new ideas that have never been tested before. And I would hazard a guess a mining audience that are looking for a particular solution. How do you overcome that? I might almost build a little bit on what Jess was saying in terms of the selection to kind of answer that a little bit and step back to, I guess, a point in the process before we kind of even get to reviewing. So one thing that it's not easy, but we definitely haven't solved. And it's something that's always on my mind is, you know, we're trying to engage people from all over the world with different languages and different cultures. And that is really challenging when we're trying to basically put information in front of essentially, usually a group of mining engineers to say, oh, which one of these do you like to, which technologies will work work for you? And so a lot of our role is, is, is saying, well, how do we help 
translate that message? How do we understand if someone speaks a completely different language, how can we support them to get their idea through? And uh, the cultural challenges and differences that we see is often around how do you communicate ideas effectively? In some cultures, it's not okay to ask questions. In some cultures, it's not okay to say what you're bad at. Um, And we're encouraging people, we ask people when they submit, how might you fail? And what kind of things do you need to specifically help you succeed? And, you know, how do you compare to your competitors? And a lot of people are not comfortable articulating that. So a lot of the time, this comes back to, I think, what we were saying before as well. I'll often jump on a call with someone who's come through our process who I feel like hasn't kind of got their message across clearly to say, okay, look, I want to understand where you're at. I want to understand what challenges you've had. Can we work together to try and help reframe this messaging so that when someone does read this, it jumps out to them as something that's interesting? Because the other thing that we have to remember, particularly when we're doing this early kind of filtering, is that, you know, the people that we're trying to work with to assess some of these solutions and technologies that come through are very time poor. So they're kind of scanning things quickly and making a quick decision about, oh, yeah, that's interesting or that not so much. And so we have to really think about how we enable people to best put their solution forward in a way to whoever they whoever that message needs to get to is, is geared well for that, that person. And it is really, really hard to do that. So I think something that we're always trying to look to improve on is you know, how do we engage people, particularly the language barrier is challenging, but also those cultural differences that we have around how do we actually talk about solutions and, and problems. Holly, I've worked with you now for many years, let's say, uh, probably coming up three or four years now in different capacities. But yet most of the time I feel like we work for the same organisation and we never we never have. I'm hoping that you feel the same here uh, as I go on with this question. Otherwise, I'm going to look like a fool. However, there's something about a place of belonging or being a part of something more than just those who we work for that I think helps drive more out of individuals and attracts more people to it love to hear your perspective on how we create spaces for people to be a part of and yeah completely agree with that sentiment and I feel like my natural answer or my natural where I go to when I when I hear those things is that it's a shared vision and it's a shared goal so I think when two organizations have very similar visions and not just about the endpoint that you want to get to but how you're going to get there so what's the culture what's important to you what values are important to you what behaviors are important to you about how you want to achieve that and when that all aligns you very much do feel like you're part of the same team and, you know, you don't need to think about your organizational boundaries, you know, all the time. And I think that is really what draws people into the TAD ecosystem generally, right? There's a very strong and clear vision and mission about what we're trying to do in terms of transforming the mining industry. But at the same time, it's just as equally as important about how we do that and how we do that together. So it's those shared values about Putting, putting people first and, and it being a very human approach and, and caring for one another that help people feel like they're really part of a tribe. You know, we were having a conversation before this about the level of engagement of, of the broader ecosystem and all the partners within TAD. And I just think it's phenomenal how this group has brought together so many different partner organisations who all turn up every day super excited to work on this mission together and absolutely love it and enjoy it. And the engagement levels are so high compared to what we would see in most traditional large kind of corporates. So I think it's a real credit to the team to have created that. And I think it's a really good example for others to look to as well as like how you can actually bring people together who wouldn't normally work together in this capacity and who might traditionally have quite transactional and commercial relationships who are able to come together around a shared mission and, and and be flexible in how they do that 
because they have they know they have the same kind of ways of working and goals and alignment um, behind them to support that. I love what you said there because we so often talk about the balance between the what and the how in the work that we do and how so much is about the technology and about the asset and about the way that we deliver value, you know, through these beautiful rocks in the ground. Um, But it's also about the how and it's about how we engage with communities and how we create multidimensional, multi-stakeholder value and then how we work together as well. So how we can be outcome-based in a way that delivers value for both organizations as if it's one team and be inclusive and collaborative and quite creative in the meantime as well. And, and like I said, have fun. That's really important. And I, I've actually never worked in a group where we get pers- so personal so quickly. And I think it's really interesting. Like I remember the first time I actually met Holly in person, us going out for coffee and just having this brilliant overshare straight away. And it was funny that we felt safe to do that right away because it's not something I think normally you would do the first time you sit down with a new person in a business setting. But there's something about this culture that we've created that by the time you've kind of drawn yourself into the ecosystem, you feel like you're in a safe place and you feel like you can have that conversation with someone who's ready to kind of meet you where you are. And I think it's it's really, really special and it's really hard to describe how you got there, but it's really important to acknowledge when you're in it. You know, a lot of people that come into the ecosystem initially may be quite uncomfortable with some of these levels of, of, of sharing, but in all of the meetings and workshops and things that we do, you both show your vulnerability and put yourselves out there to kind of say how you're feeling or say how you're going and being really open and honest with that. And so I think that's how you're able to kind of quickly create this environment where people kind of say like, okay, well, I, I can see other people doing this. This is okay. This is how people engage and, and get comfortable with doing that your abilities to kind of put yourself out there and do that and lead from the front has been key at you know helping other people feel comfortable with that quickly too. We are all whole people after all, aren't we? So bringing your whole self to the things that you spend the most time in your life doing, which is work, uh, is so important to build trust and to have fun and, and to want to show up for the people that you work with and have them show up for you. I think that's really key to creating an inclusive, safe space. I remember many a meeting where, Jess, you would have to say, I'm taking a walk. And for about the next 15 minutes, she was walking. And that was either because we'd got ourselves stuck in the mud, we weren't making progress, or things were deeply uncomfortable. So I I think we've uh, all got stories about how hard it is to make yourself comfortable in this way of working. I think there can be a confronting amount of change that you need to accept from multiple angles at the same time to be able to push through a really complex problem. We often joke that we were building the plane while it was plummeting towards the ground, right? We made a conscious choice to design the process while we ran the process. And so I'd never been to a meeting where we'd start out by saying, we're not going to have the answer today. It's like an American trying to understand cricket. I will never, ever, ever get how you can play for five days and not have a winner. But I we think all know it's the I, best sport on earth, Jess. God, we shouldn't fight about this on the internet. Um, but <laughs> but <laughs> I found it really hard to get used to having a full day workshop where you would walk out sometimes more confused than when you started. I found that really, really hard to accept at first. And yes, I'm a very active person. So the way that I deal with tension is I need to go take a couple of laps around the block to process all of this. And when I come back, I will be in the right frame of mind to embrace it again. So yes, you're right. I have had to step away. And I think being able to say that's important too. You know, if you need to clear your head, you need to clear your head. And that's something 
that many people don't have the um, opportunity or maybe the bravery to be able to actually call out in those those moments of tension. So we've spoken heaps about the innovators and the way we connect with them and engage with them. But what about the mining sector at large? What would be your message or your hope to the mining sector if they want to start working more in this space? How could they approach it? You know, I think we've actually come quite far in general as an industry in thinking differently, particularly if we look at the energy transition that we're trying to go through. Um, I think the majority of um, mining companies have understood that they can't answer that question from within their own walls and that they really need to go out outside to do that. So I think if you are starting off on that journey, it's, it is thinking about, you know, what does it mean to engage outside of the traditional, you know, R&D pathways or, or mechanisms that, that you might might have. So we are seeing more people now experiment with this kind of challenge methodology. So putting your problem statement out there, I would certainly encourage people to think about who in your organization may be best suited to do that. We've talked a lot about organizational culture today. And we often, you know, when we talk to people about designing their innovation functions, um, that has to also be designed around the culture of your your business and each one is going to be different and each person's um, innovation strategy is also going to be different. But thinking about what's your internal team and who's responsible for that and ultimately what are they trying to achieve? I think one of the things that TAD has been great at is really aligning the TAD mission with the organizational mission and strategy and that being very clear as to how that connects down to you know quite tangible returns. So I would certainly encourage people to think about that when you're setting up that function and then think about the roles within the functions that you would need to have to you know, enable that engagement with the broader broader ecosystems and giving people the freedom to actually go and explore and be part of different groups and learn from what other people are doing and helping them develop a framework to bring that in back into your organization. You said a word that really resonated with me then, and that was roles. And I think one of the things we've had to really challenge ourselves with is instead of going out and hiring a full-time person to come and do a piece of work and play a part in our ecosystem that, you know, we're a part of, it's also been around finding contingent labor or creatively sourcing people who also have a pile of side hustles or a million jobs that they feel passionately about and do at different times of the year and finding ways to get creative and work with them. And that's something that we've experimented with a lot, but has actually allowed us to access so much more talent And I think when COVID hit, we were already of the mindset that we would be willing to work virtually and find global talent and work weird hours and try Google Translate for things that you probably naturally wouldn't have. And I think there's all these different ways to to bring in those skills that we hadn't tried before. And it's been amazing, not just in our, you know, the innovators that we reach out to, but also within the people that we use to connect with those innovators and build our experiences and do the work within the teams technically or otherwise. So that's really interesting because designing that team in a way where it's not necessarily five people who work five days a week, it, it might look completely different than that. And being open to kind of figuring it out as you go has really allowed us to connect with other people who can help us get there faster in ways that we wouldn't have been able to otherwise. We talk about skills shortages a lot in our industry and the default response to that is often, well, we need to make sure we have more graduates from university um, to so we have more employees that fit, fit you know, the bums on seats that we need in our organizations. And we often miss the opportunity to think about things differently. And I think Tad is a great demonstration of this in practice, right? Like it's not about the the skills challenge isn't there for Tad in the the same way. You've been able to build a system that enables you to access the skills that you need to do 
you know, the roles and, and do the work that you need to get done. And I, I know I'm not going to say it's been easy, but it probably hasn't been as hard as you might think. And I think some of that reframing about, well, actually, we don't have a skills issue in TAD, really. Like, we know where to go and get the skills that, that we need. We know how to engage people. I'm not saying we've solved all the world's problems, but I think there's, there's a, it's a really good example of how to sh- challenge some of that skills shortage thinking um, for an industry that is still very focused on going back to kind of traditional ways of, of meeting their skills requirements. I totally agree. And I think one of the other things that's been really interesting is finding universities who are willing to kind of stretch their thinking a little bit. So I've actually been asked to go speak at one of the local unis about what skills of the future look like and what students actually need to do to not work in the mining industry, but just to find a job after school and what that looks like. And it's been really eye-opening. I mean, I hired an intern once who said he was getting a computer science degree because he thought that's what you needed to do to be a project manager. And it was very hard not to say he'd wasted years of his life. But there's all these sort of misconceptions about how you get from A to B. I mean, I have a degree in marketing and one in Spanish, and I get to run an incubator at a mining company which probably on paper looks insane, but actually it's about those lived experiences that you gather along the way and how you can create a reusable skill in connecting patterns and managing outcomes and things like that that actually gets you to another perspective. I think uh, referring to university days as lived experiences (laughs) probably resonates with many people listening today. I am unsure how valuable my two degrees ended up being, apart from the fact that I learnt how to learn. So to take us home today, what would be your advice to somebody that's trying to get started in this space to ensure that they set their work programs in the right direction for building diversity and creating inclusive environments? What a tough question to bring home on. Okay, I'm going to have a crack at this from firstly a a a tactical side, which is I think no matter what you're doing, make sure that you're linking it to the broader business strategy and always be holding that in terms of like, what is it ultimately, what's the actual outcome that you're trying to achieve? And then in terms of that, you know, we, we talked about the what and the how and the how we work in terms of actually, I think, developing that culture and encouraging diversity. My two key things is just, you know, stay curious as the main thing, be always interested in people, be always wanting to learn about someone's experience, always want to learn about how they see a scenario and be actively trying to, you know, build your knowledge by learning from others. I think if that's the mindset you can go into, it's a really good one to start with and and empathy comes from that. And I think it's just putting that that mind that you, you don't know everything and that you're really open to learning and don't have a default position of oh no that will never work or that can't happen but have the default position of well this is a good problem to solve how are we going to go and solve it and who can I work with to solve it my answer is in three parts and it's purpose person process so I think defining your purpose in a way that's meaningful to you and gives a lot of other different people and different stakeholders a way to connect into that why is really important person, I think we've talked a lot about breaking down bias and bringing your whole self and being brave and vulnerable in a really uncomfortable and public way. Um, But that actually brings down barriers and helps you bring pace at value that you, I, I don't think, can otherwise. And I guess process is that last piece because you sort of have to be 
open to creating the process while you go. But if you want to create lasting change, you need to be able to repeat it at scale. And so making sure that what you're doing is something that you can build on and repeat is really, really important, but also leaves room for creativity and brings in diversity. And I think the other thing that's really been interesting for me is I would say we've had no less than 475 goes at defining how to capture the value that we're delivering along the way. Um, and I think being open to having a crack and knowing it's not right, but it's trying to experiment with how to tell your story and the value you're creating and then building on that with a diverse community and being open to change and being challenged is really, really important. So I think if you take something out of each of those three buckets, then you're off and running. And to me, it's just having a crack. And I think that's a very Australian way to put it. But it's probably the biggest thing I've learned is don't be scared to just start. Don't spend too much time figuring out how to start. Just do something. And if it doesn't work, publicize it as the best learning you've ever had, right? And the one thing Jess will keep reminding me of every day is we have to have fun while we're doing this. If we're not having fun, there's absolutely no point in uh, pushing forwards. Please don't stop doing this amazing work. Thank you so much for sharing your stories, your vulnerabilities and your lessons. I look forward to seeing the amazing things that you both do next. So a massive thank you to Jessica Doherty from Think and Act Differently and Holly Bridgewater from Human AI and Unearthed. Thanks, Katie. It's been really fun to be here. Thanks, Katie. And thanks, Jess. It was super fun and really enjoyed the conversation. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Modern Mining Podcast. To find out more about the amazing work the TAD team do, please head to thinkactdifferently.com.au. This episode was recorded on Ghana land at Podmo Studio and the lands of the Wajak Noongar people and was produced and edited by Lauren McWhirter.